Hi, I'm Jennifer Ackerman Haywood, and you're listening to the Craft Sanity Podcast. This is a weekly interview show that is all about art, craft, and creativity. I produce it in the hope that it will help all of us live long and crafty lives. So let's get to it, folks. It's time to craft sanity. Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode 54 of the Craft Sanity Podcast. This one took longer to uh, kick out than I wanted it to. I interviewed Julie Drusild Roth, who is a wonderful person to talk to. I really enjoyed this interview. She is the author and illustrator of a book for children called Knitting Nell. And I learned about this book when it was sent to my newspaper, and the book's editor knows that I am a crafty woman. And... uh, asked me if I would review the book as part of a roundup of some craft books I was looking at. And while this book was not a how-to book about knitting, it was about a little girl named Nell who knits all the time and is really the only one in her group of friends that seems to appreciate the fiber arts. (laughs) So I read the book and read it to my daughter and just fell in love with it and thought, I have to have this woman on my podcast. And Julie did entertain my request to be on the show. And we talked, and this is the last interview that I have in my stockpile from last year. I know it's unbelievable, but I hope you enjoy it. And I'll tell you a little bit about Julie. Julie is 48 and she lives in Minneapolis, Minnesota. And she is a very talented artist and illustrator and If you look at the website, craftsanity.com, I'll be posting some of her work up there with links to her site so you'll be able to get a look at what she creates. And the thing that's really interesting, too, about Julie is that she doesn't just paint and do book illustrations. She has been a maker since childhood. So she's going to tell us um, some of the, the things that she used to make as a child and how she kind of got her creative start. And... I'm not going to rehash all that because she says it better in her own words, so I'm not going to tell you the story twice. So without further ado, let's get on to this interview that's taken me so long to, <laughs> to get out there. Thanks for your patience, Julie. Here we go. Here's Julie, the author of Knitting Now. How old were you when you started making, making things? things? Yeah. You know, don't you think that you're just sort of born that way? Um, I mean, I think you are. I think you are born with something, kind of a wiring yeah. for for those sorts of things. Well, and at my website, it was interesting because I was trying to go back in time and remember all the things that really I loved to make. And, of course, they're they're varied and crazy over the years. But I remember as a kid um, spending a lot of time in the woods behind our house making pine needle houses when I was about four and five Um I would spend hours, and that was just simply gathering up mounds of pine needles and spreading them out in rows, kind of like an architectural drawing, and then using mounds of them for chairs and, um, you know, a big mound for my little bed. And I think I got a friend in on that endeavor at one point. But um, so you were actually that took cr- up a lot of time. That was like at that. I remember being one of the first things that I had the power to make on my own. I was old enough to go out into the woods in the backyard and just go for it, you know, with the materials at hand. You know, there was no no need to be off to the store grabbing anything, <laughs> right. crayons, pens, you know, nothing. It was just 
And I think that um, love of nature, too, has stuck. So between the two, those are the things that really um, fuel my passion the most, being outside, being in nature, and making things. And so they were essentially just mounds of pine needles. Yeah, lots and lots of pine needles. And then I would make them into rows so that the outside of the house was, you know, was like a big square. Okay, okay. Rows of pine needles. and, And then the rooms, too, would have their walls the same way, built out of rows of pine needles, you know, in, in kind of thicker mounds. Wow. Hard to describe. Yeah, well, was this something that I'm, <laughs> well, I'm just trying to get a sense for this. Was like like an, a drawn, a sketch of like a, what would look like a floor plan? Uh, if you were, yeah, a sort of a bird's eye view of a floor plan. Okay, and then you would just pile then make like what you would consider your bed or a chair. Right. And within that space you had outlined. Right, and it, it was a literal bird's eye view because I was out in the woods. <laughs> right, that sounds wonderful, and I just want to make sure I had a clear picture in my head. Well, that's sort of the first thing that I remember uh, making with enthusiasm. And then after that, of course, it was, you know, anything I could get my hands on. Um, But the the crafting part of it, I think, began in second grade when when we had to do a poetry book. And the the actual decorating of the book became, became more exciting for me. And I was, I had asked my mother to teach me how to needlepoint or, or embroider a little cover pattern for the book. And I remember it being so exciting because she had pulled out, at, the po- at that point she was doing some cool work or something, and um, she showed me some basic embroidery skills. And I remember just thinking, wow, this is great fun. And I think it was shortly after that my grandmother pulled out her sewing machine and taught me some, you know, basic seam skills. And then it was just this whole world opening up of things that I could make. Um, you know, and I think we pulled out a lot of felt, too, and made little doll, uh, doll clothes. And one thing leads to another. <laughs> as oh, know. yeah. Yep. So um, that's the history of crafting anyway, uh, you know, and then just wanting to try all the things over the years. So I understand that you um, also play guitar. Yep, I used to play guitar and, and piano and not so much anymore, unfortunately. <laughs> no, that's okay. Uh, I had a brief guitar phase myself, but mine uh, was not serious at all. I, w- I never really got very good at all. I just, at 16, decided I needed to buy an electric guitar. <laughs> yeah. Well, my, my recent um, idea is that I wanted to learn violin after my son was playing um, for a while as a as a youngster. He's now a teen and is playing guitar. But that whole making things by hand a desire kind of came into my process of trying to figure out whether this was really the thing I should do because I'd heard some violinist friends say that it really takes its toll on your hands. And I was thinking, you know, I'm in my 40s and I really want to take care of my hands. I want to make sure that they do what I want them to do. Right, right. Even though I want to learn violin, I know it's really intense on your hands. And so I'm still putting off that decision. It may be something that I do more for my brain (laughs) coming up in the next decade. But um, I was really concerned about that. And I think maybe a lot of crafters are, especially knitters, 
um, concerned about their hands. Yeah, you have to kind of pick, you know, what you're going to do and also kind of listen Mm -hmm. to your body, too. That's one of the mistakes I've made along the way where I've really crafted to the point of numbness uh, and tendonitis, and it's ridiculous. So now I'm I'm a little smarter now (laughs) about what I do, but maybe if you try violin, you can maybe try, try it and see how your hands feel. You yeah, know, I and actually then, have had a few lessons, and I I tend to really tense up, and I so that was part of my reason, mm, kind of giving it some time. Yeah, because I'd much rather be doing other things. Well, yeah, that's the thing. If it comes down to violin, which you don't know how to play now really well, and or knitting, which is something you know how to do, um, yeah, I can see your I can see where that's a difficult decision. Well, knitting and sewing and painting actually is the the thing that I love to do the most. Right, um, right. Which Believe it or not, takes a bit of that fine motor dexterity too. Oh, of course, of course. I mean, it, it seems like it would be a little looser, but the way I paint it seems to take its toll. Mm-hmm. <laughs> anyway. Well, no, I think that's a, an issue that all, all people who make things with their hands think of, because our hands are our tools, our most basic exactly. supplies to make what we make. As a child, it sounds like you had plenty of creative outlets and really seized every creative opportunity that came your way, whether it was grandma pulling out her sewing machine or, you know, getting to play guitar or whatever came your way. And so when you got through high school and decided on college, where did you go and what did you study? Um, I left home to go to a, uni- a public university in uh, Wisconsin. I went to La Crosse for three years, and then I transferred up to the University of Minnesota in Minneapolis to study art history and fine art. They had a better program and I was ready for a bigger city at that point. And then I sort of built my own or designed my own little um, adjunct program at the College of Art and Design here. They had a wonderful selection of classes that you could take outside of their normal program. So I did a lot of um, illustration and graphic design, just trying to beef up my visual skills kind of all around and didn't really know at the time what I'd end up doing, but I knew I wanted to either go into art history or, or fine arts. And I was a, a dancer at the time, too, but I pretty much knew that that wasn't going to be the the profession that was going to work for a lifetime. It just didn't seem like that was going to fit with my personality. So anyway, I graduated from the University of Minnesota, and then I had just had a lot of other classes in my background that helped me get my very first job, which was in computer graphics, which I never would have guessed would have been where I ended up. I thought I was going to end up in a museum doing editorial <laughs> yeah. work or something, yeah. painting on the side. And in the early, well, it was I guess it was the mid-80s when computer graphics as a concept was born. Mm-hmm. Most people didn't know what that was. I spent a lot of time explaining to people what it was and what I did. And back then, it was sitting at a humongous machine, you know, multi-million dollar machines that completely surrounded you. And like, you know, what we know is available to us in our home computers these days. It was like the precursor to all of that. And I would sit at this machine for eight hours a day, surrounded by electricity. I felt like I was being... (laughs) wrapped <laughs> dry but anyway we were doing graphics that would probably today be considered something like a powerpoint presentation okay kind of souped up visuals for corporations and that's how i that was my first real job 
we did some work for print, which was more exciting because it was a little bit more art-oriented using a little bit more of our creative skills. There were a couple of us who were the guinea pigs for this job. And <laughs> <laughs> Anyway, it was a good learning experience because, as is much of life, our decisions seem to be based on what we don't like. <laughs> And um, yeah, right, one of right. those jobs where it's right. five years, but then I realized, no, you know what? I am just so not a high tech person. Anyway, so that was the first job that quickly led into getting back to the paintbrushes and pulling out some of the stuff that I love to do. So what did you do? You worked there for five years, and then did you just quit, or did you find I another did. job? I pretty much just quit. I I should have quit. Uh, <laughs> far sooner than I did, but I was starting to get the book bug. I had been to a place here in Minneapolis called the Minnesota Center for Book Arts, which was one of the first of its kind also, where it was a nonprofit center for disseminating information and offering classes in book arts, meaning old letterpress printing and old forms of book binding, paper making, and really, really hands-on bookmaking, old world and it just totally captivated me. And I spent a lot of time there. And I ended up leaving computer graphics to go and take an internship at a, at a small fine press publishing house. It was called Grey Wolf Press. It's still in existence. And they do just beautiful literature, just fine literature and poetry. And I just hung around books. That's what I wanted to do. And I did keep some hours at the computer graphics job just to pay the bills. Mm-hmm. But the rest of it was exploring kind of new territory. And I guess I just knew I needed to work around them or make them or do them or something. So I was just trying to infuse my life with that that kind of stimulus. And I ended up getting a job at the Center for Book Arts in administration. I was like their third employee, and I ended up running their educational program. Wow, that must have been great. It was. It was perfect. I ended up taking a humongous pay cut, and I thought I could make it by doing freelance illustration on the side. It was a really good idea, <laughs> but it didn't work as well in reality. What do you mean? It, the the well, money just wasn't there as well, far as... It's, yeah, I was moving from high tech, the high tech sector, down to nonprofit. Right, and then art—you throw art into it, and it's yeah. always. <laughs> and like many, you know, people in their twenties, I had school loans and all kinds of mounting debt. And were you by yourself at the time? I mean, yeah, I you, was okay. by myself. Okay. And so it was difficult. I made it work, but I—I um, I was there for about a year or so. But it definitely got all the juices moving. I was eventually lured back into high tech for another um, stint, which I sort of regret. But you know, at the time, it was it was a little bit exciting. And was it a financial decision to go back to high tech? It was some of a financial decision, and then it was kind of a we need you. You're the only person who can help us do this. We have this new machine, and we want you to be the you know the the person who gets to know it so that you can tell the rest of the world, you know, what it's all about. So it was like your your old job. It was like my old job. It was a whole new system. It was okay. called a cross-field, um, what was the exact name? I can't think now. But it was, it was sort of like the predecessor to our paint systems that we use now so frequently. 
on our home computers. Okay. Um, so it was like the I was like the beta test site person for this paint system, and it was just way too exciting. It was like, okay, I can paint and use some of what I've know, you know been learning and, and know how to do here for five years. And then I've already made these connections in the book world, so I can keep that up, too. And it just seemed like a really nice fit for mm-hmm. the short term. And, and then um, I had met my husband right about the time, and we, we ended up having our first child shortly thereafter. And then <clears throat> the um, position with the second tech company came to a close. And then we ended up starting our family, and I stayed home which was wonderful. And so were you painting when you were home? I did, did a you? lot of things, freelance from home, you name it, I did it. Just um, painting, illustration, graphic design, I did some greeting card work. Um, I even did some handmade jewelry for a while. For Before beading got really amazingly popular, um, I had found one little shop and had been collecting some antique beads and... Um, at the time, had a number of friends who were getting married, and I was making jewelry for their weddings. And one thing led to another, and it seemed to be the perfect thing for me with young children. Um, creative outlet, you know, in small pieces, so I could keep them keep them up high on a table away from them, mm-hmm. and work here and there. Um, so I did heirloom quality jewelry for about. Oh, I don't know, two or so years just to kind of <laughs> fill in some time and yeah. still be available to my kids and um, puttering all the while on books and stories and artwork and, you know, thinking that when they were older, I would get to the children's literature part of my life, which had always been a plan, more or less, um, but I just didn't think that I'd be any good at it until I'd experienced my own kids. Mm-hmm. And so, so you were you painting all all along as well? Yeah, pretty much. Um, yeah, I was. I, I I don't think that I was doing it with as much regularity as as I maybe should have. <laughs> but there were all kinds of things um, to distract me. Yeah. As you know. Well, I think I think one of the things that I look back and I look just at the, you know, the eight and a half years I've had since college and I kind of look at it and I'm thinking, hmm, did I really spend all the time I had in the, you know, the wisest fashion? But, you know, I think sometimes you just have to let, you know, kind of live the life you're living, you know what I mean, and, and have that experience. So it sounds like you had some wonderful experiences to kind of shape, that were going to shape the rest of your life and your creative life as well. Um, you know, you're, so you, you had this time, um, you got through the jewelry phase and we're still thinking books. I mean, has it always been your dream to, to have a children's book with your name on the cover? Uh, <laughs> well, you know, I, I think that, um, Probably everyone has had something that's really kind of been there from an early age, you know, something that that made sense or, <laughs> or for lack of a better word, just some sort of little hankering or inkling. And I, um, I did. And maybe it was just from those first forays into bookmaking when I was in elementary school. And I did have one teacher who was incredibly supportive. You know, one of those teachers you never forget in sixth grade who always was just so 
um, used superlatives all over my paper. You know, superb, wonderful, outstanding. You know, where you you believe it. You say, mm-hmm. "Oh my gosh!" You know, even though he's writing it on everybody else's papers as well, <laughs> <laughs> you believe that you're a good writer. And right. I think at that point, I was starting to think, you know what? I really love everything about making little books and writing and drawing and painting and then um, I also loved children's books like many children do and um, I think it was probably you know one of those early wonderings thinking you know what maybe this is something that I could do and wouldn't that be just so incredible so it kind of stuck and and was just the thing that I thought that I would do at some point. Mm-hmm. And so how did you, uh, what did you do to keep continuing to take steps toward that goal? Um, when I was first pregnant, I remember um, thinking, okay, life's going to change here pretty fast. So I better take, um, and I had a little break. I had just left this second high tech position they had ended the whole program early and I was sort of out of a job and about three months pregnant so I had you know I was basically unemployable <laughs> pretty much <laughs> yeah and, it's hard to go to a job interview with um you know yeah. expand o pants on you know exactly. this, yeah, so I thought well you know I'll take this time and I'll just really kind of work on some portfolio pieces for what I hope will be a career down the road perhaps um and we were pretty sure that we wanted one of us to stay home with the kids or this first child anyway and of course that was made more sense for me um, with the flexible work and so i took that last six months and just really spent a lot of nice quiet time painting and studying other book illustrators and trying to figure out what direction i should go and i think like a lot of visual artists, you want to try every medium and every everything that makes sense to you. You want to get out on paper. And I was trying to do a lot of that, um, all the while knowing that in reality, in order to sell yourself, you have to really hone in on one style in order to be recognizable. So I actually struggled with that for a long time. Um, in the you know, various stages of trying to get my portfolio perfected, or at least close to what I thought was perfect for me. Do you believe that, though? I mean, because it sounds like you love to do various art forms, not just one I thing. Do. So I... do you really believe that to be recognizable, you have to pick one thing? Or do you think that's just kind of like the larger societal viewpoint that you should pick one thing because I know people fortunately say well Jennifer if you just picked one thing you could sleep more and you'd blah 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 and I'm just like you know what if I pick one thing I would go nuts yeah and I think I'd probably I'm probably half out of my gourd now but but, but I mean oh, I really I feel so I really I, feel like I, I can't pick one thing yeah. I, I just don't I there's no way it's just not possible for me to pick one thing I think in the general approach to life it's um I questioned myself a long time um you know like I love doing all these things, and I'm really, like, not excelling at any of them because I don't have enough time to devote to all of them in order to, um, you know, really succeed. And and 
I remember thinking, you know, you really should do something about that. Same thing, you know, mm-hmm. pick one, pick two. Mm-hmm. Yeah, pick and five it, or six, you know, instead of yeah, 12 or 13, yeah. But now I've decided it's just fine. I am so glad that I explored all of these the avenues and whatever um, because it's really, I feel like a much more rounded person and I feel like now in my 40s I really know what I want to do and what moves me the most. And um, and what is that? I would say it's definitely making books for mm-hmm. kids, mm-hmm. for sure, right now, um, and painting and writing. Um, but then just getting back to your question about how it affects, um, like, an illustration portfolio, I would say that that, um, that attitude of accepting all, <laughs> all directions doesn't work at first in a portfolio, just in case anybody is really interested in knowing. Mm -hmm. Um, It does seem like when you're first starting out that you really must get a little bit closer to who you are stylistically Mm -hmm. just so that you're not all over the place. Right, right, because especially if you're trying to sell your work or something, you know. Yeah, it just seems like it helps you get that foot in the door, that toe in the door, if you can just establish yourself as something that's identifiable. And then from there, I think that you can start breaking rules and and becoming more flexible again because you've got a little bit of clout and background and notches in your belt and that kind of stuff. Right, right. Well, I think it probably goes without saying that in many, um, I know in journalism school, we learn the inverted pyramid, you know, and where you start with the most important fact and go wind the story down to something that could be cut off at on deadline at the copy desk and the story would still be okay. But I have to tell you on a daily basis, I don't really think about the inverted pyramid at all, you know, and I like to, I kind of like to end my stories when I can with a little gem, like yeah. a little surprise or treat for the reader yeah. if they hang with me for, for through the whole story, which is not at all what, you know, the basic uh, inverted pyramid style. So it's one of those things that you're taught um, in school and I'm sure art school, it has their similar principles and style points that you're taught that you should adhere to. And then, you know, once you establish yourself, you can just kind of do what you want. Right, um, right. So I do think that's exactly right. But it's 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 challenging, though. I imagine I, I never had to bring an art portfolio in front of anybody because all the artwork I've done has been completely like I have, I guess, full creative license to do whatever I want since no one's paying me to do any of this stuff. <laughs> so I guess it's kind of liberating that way, but um, yeah. it's certainly not lucrative. But I think for, I, I can only imagine, I'm not going to claim to, and you, I'm looking for you to weigh in on this one, but I think that that must be really stressful and challenging when you're a budding artist and you're trying to figure out, your, your find your voice and find your, your medium and find out what kind of art you really want to make and what's in you and what you really need to get out to the world and communicate to the world through the artwork and it to have that pressure to have a style developed and you know do all these things when you're just starting out it's got to be that's got to be kind of frustrating at times to have that pressure to know exactly who you are and what you're making when you're in the process of figuring all that out yeah, yeah. for me it definitely was and i admire people the people who do figure it out right away i admire so much and i have met many of them and and you can ask them straight out when did you know how did you know um and it seems to be one of those things that um as with those early inklings that we get about what we might want to do mm-hmm. or who we are when we're kids they seem to 
to just have a greater connection to that earlier on. Like there's no there's no real pattern. It's just a personality thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's what helped me decide that it was okay for me to then just be all over the place because that's just who I am. Too. Right, right. I've always been that way. Yeah, and when I'm out with kids now um, doing various activities with them in schools and libraries, with the book in particular, that's what I try to really hone in on, if so, listen. <laughs> and sometimes <laughs> if I can get them knitting, then they'll listen. Um, but I try to talk about the character in this book even just um, as a point of reference that if you really listen to yourself, and when you're a kid, like knitting Nell's age, I mean, she knew and knows in the book exactly what she wants to do every day. She just knits, knits, knits. And while that's very hard for most kids to understand, you know, doing something so uh, to such a point of exhaustion all day long, they they definitely kind of get it. And so we try to talk about, um, you know, what it is that what each child in the room loves to do the most and and um, try to get them to think about listening to themselves and what does that mean. And it's amazing in this really noisy world, kids just don't have enough time to sit and listen to themselves. And um, because I think a lot of the, a lot of what we are about when we're children ends up being what we're about when we're, when we're adults. And anyway, I don't know if that answered well, your No, and I think no, no, I think that's a, I think that's a great point because I know that just thinking back, I was blessed to have a wonderful English teacher when I was in about fifth, sixth grade as well. Um, I was a school secretary, and she taught our English class, and she would use her body to diagram sentences. Like she'd have her legs sticking out and an arm sticking out, and you know she would be doing all these you know just crazy stuff out in, out in front of the room. But I used to go after school and sit in the office and talk to her about writing and books and and all kinds of things. And I always knew that I wanted to be a writer, you know. But I was always a maker. I was always making things. I'd go home from school and make things, and so I always. I always knew that's what I wanted to do and that's what I'm the happiest doing. But something happens. I don't know. You know, the saddest thing for me is when I realize that, you know, I see children, little kids are so, you ask them what they like to do and they can tell you right away and they can, you know, it seems like adults, sometimes we get bogged down in responsibility in our, in our lives. I mean, you can't just, you know, walk out of the office and go to the beach whenever you want or go home and knit a sweater whenever you want. I mean, we have obligations, you know, and so it's, it's refreshing, I think, to be around children who are so free in their thinking. And so just they light up when they talk about things mm-hmm. they love. So how wonderful for you to be able to inspire kids and have these discussions with little, little brilliant minds. Well, I hope it's inspiring. It certainly is just plain old fun. Yeah, well, that's see, that's the thing that's, I wish that for everyone, that everyone, and I mean, I think that's just one of the best things, that if you can figure out something you really, really enjoy in life and make it happen, because a lot of people say, well, in five or ten years, I'm going to do that thing. It's like, you know what? I mean, I I guess I spent too many years writing about um, dead people um, as a reporter. You know, I'd come on the scene after someone's been in a horrible accident or something terrible's happened, and I'm interviewing friends and family about that person and their life, and and you know, I guess for me, it's been drilled into me every you know, every time I do a story like that. I think, geez, you know, 
we don't know, you know, how much time we have. So right. it's so important to find your passion as fast as you can right. and, you know, try everything, you know. And um, just when you brought that up, it made me think of another story from my early working life that that helped fuel <laughs> um well, just get kind of decisions that I made when you said something about, you know, as, as adults, we have so many responsibilities, we can't just run out off to the beach and with our knitting. And um, that is a humongous drag for most people. It's mm-hmm. just how do I find this balance? I have to do so many things. How do I make time for the rest? And when I was um, in college, one of the first jobs I had was at the General Motors plant in Janesville, Wisconsin, where I was raised, um, it was a really cool thing if you could get a summer job at the General Motors plant. And I worked there for two summers making really good money for college and met incredible people. Um, basically, we would just go to different parts of the whole plant and take over when people were on vacation. So I was meeting all kinds of people um, from all the different, um, what they called lines, mm-hmm. because the cars would come by one at a time, mm-hmm. uh, one at a time and one every minute. And I guess I was just at that age, too, being like 19, 20, when you're really philosophical about everything. <laughs> <laughs> and it was amazing what having that job did for me. First of all, it puts life on a minute-by-minute scale. So here I'm watching this you know, part of a car coming by, one every minute, and doing the same thing every minute, and thinking, oh my gosh, there are people who do this for a lifetime, you know, for their work, and how amazing, and how do they find the balance between this kind of work and what they really want to do, because clearly this isn't anything more than a money-making job. Right, I have never heard anybody say, I want to spend my life making... Yeah, but then at the same time, I, I... because I would spend a week or so, sometimes two or three, on a certain line, I would get to know certain people, and their the, and their stories would come out. They would talk about what it was that they enjoyed, and you know, when they left work, it was, um, in fact, so evident. Everybody would work up the line at the end of the day if they could. If you could reach your tools, like up ten <laughs> cars or ten motors or whatever you were working on. You could leave 10 minutes early. Oh, so as far as you could reach ahead, work ahead. Yeah, and it was all about getting out of there on a Friday, and many of these people were off to their cabins or to their boats on the lake, and, you know, it was like, let me out of here, and the passion was just, like, flying, and it was like this screaming mass of crazy happy people leaving this building to go to what they really wanted to do, Mm -hmm. and a lot of them also would do that regularly during the day. They would work up the line and read while the, while the 10 cars were going by. In 10 minutes, one guy had poetry book, and he, that's what he did. He, had, he just loved his job because it afforded him what he wanted outside in the world because he was making a good living. And he could also read during the day his stacks of poetry. And thankfully, he took a few minutes here and there to talk to me and tell me what about what he was doing and reading but what a great place I thought at the time that I hated the job but now when I look back I think oh my gosh I really learned so much there about 
just, you know, a way, a path. Well, that's one of the keys, too, when, you know, all of us do jobs. I mean, anyone who, you know, has a job to make a living of some kind, uh, you're not always doing... Even people who have jobs that we all envy, you know, you could be craft editor at some publication and okay. we think, man, that must be all fun all the time. Well, of course it isn't, uh, you know, not all the right. time. But I think that one of the things that's so great and helps people survive jobs they might not be totally pumped up about is if they know, if they have a passion outside and whether it's that thing that motivates you to work up the line 10 minutes and get the heck out of there oh. <laughs> early, it's so important and that's so key to having that passion. And that's why I think I'm trying to do my part to expose people to all kinds of stories and art forms and, and just kind of inspire people to, you know, try something and right. see what, find out what they like and then do that as much as possible. You well, know, I think it's just amazing what you're doing. And for, for people who are listening and who haven't gone into the archives, <laughs> you really should. <laughs> well, I appreciate that. And the funny part about this is I am doing basically, I, I tried to create a show that I wanted to listen to, like something that I thought would be, and I wouldn't want to listen to the sound of my own voice for an hour and a half, but I, I'm so intrigued by your story and the stories of all the guests I've had. And it's, it's so great. And I, 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 mean, I think it's so wonderfully generous of people to spend this time telling us these stories. And I mean, even, you know, your experience at GM is not something that most artists would say, oh, well, geez, that's really going to inspire me to do a pastel about that. However, that I love, I love that story because it highlights that I think a lot of times we think, the tendency is if you if you see people working in like in factory jobs my my father's been a machine builder you know my entire life and it's not a job he loves Mm -hmm. and you know my hope for him is that someday he's going to get an opportunity to work less I guess I, I I hope to be wealthy for one reason and it would be to retire my father early and then you know just just tell him stop you don't have to do that anymore because it is I think it's hard for people that if you go to a job you don't love and you don't have time, you're so worn out because you're working right. long hours, it's hard to, you know, find that yeah. th- that balance and the energizing, um, you know, the thing to energize you to go back on Monday and do it again for another week, you know. So, um, but thank you for sharing that tidbit. I think that's great. Yeah. It's a great and, uh, story. I, I was just, my job just before that, too, just when you said something about writing about death. I was working at a funeral home. Oh, my goodness. That would be hard. I don't think I could do that. Yeah, that was just for one summer. And when you mentioned your father, I was thinking of my mother, too. I was raised with without a dad. He, he died when I was quite young, which is why it was really important for me to to go off and find, you know, work like General Motors work in the summer because my mother had had an office job at the funeral home in Janesville. And she, of course, is an office worker. I mean, she did all right, but she certainly couldn't put her kids through college. And But anyway, that was the first job I had because she liked to have her summers off, which was great for us growing up. But when I was 16, I was able to go and answer the phones at the funeral home. That was another sort of odd job to... Well, what, I mean, what was that like when you're 16 and you're taking calls from a lot of grieving people? I yeah, mean, that's, it was very interesting, and I can look back on that, too, and think, oh, my gosh, you know, there's another, wow, another pin in the pile. Yeah, you really, when you leave a job where grieving and death is all around you all day, you leave, and you're just so delighted to be walking around. And I remember just, I mean, it, in, an, in a weird way, it was one of those great summers, because when I left, I was just elated to 
you know, meet my friends and go play tennis and go to the Dairy Queen. <laughs> it was just like everything was underscored yeah. because mm-hmm. I was alive. Well, and I think for me, it's given me kind of a sense of urgency mm-hmm. about life. Like I don't want to wait two weeks. I mean, I'm already, I was born impatient. So before I even had any experience as a reporter dealing with death and destruction, I was always impatient. So for me, this is probably a terrible combination to take an impatient woman and make her a journalist covering, you know, death and destruction. And then add a whole layer of paranoia too that ensues. Cause then you hear about all the ways that people meet their demise. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and so you think of worst case scenario, I probably could have written that book. Um, you know, worst case scenario, they have the whole series of books um, of, you know, how you can uh, try to escape worst case scenarios, <laughs> but um, you know, but it does give me, I think a sense, I, I understand what you're saying, because if you hear about someone who, is no longer here and you get to go out and see the sky. I know I love seeing clouds. Like, you know, you drive home, it's a clear blue sky and you're, it's, it just seems like the world is a fantastic place, you know, and just little like things in nature. And it always seems like I, I seem to be like looking and soaking all that up, especially if I've written about something horrible that day, it heightens my awareness to everything around me. So I guess those experiences serve us, you know, well, oh, you know, so you spent um, kind of bounced around to a, a lot of different you know jobs. It sounds like throughout your you've had so many different experiences. And before you before you got to this, leading up to um, knitting now your book that came out, it came out in the summer, right? July is yeah, when it. Yeah. July. What did you have other book projects before that, or was this your first major book project? I had worked on several, just in the course of trying to find a publisher who would want to work with me. I had, with this particular editor who accepted Knitting Now, I had worked on uh, one other book about old ladies that looked like it was going to be the first book. We worked on that for a year together, going back and forth with revision and all the little things you do to get a book prepared or a manuscript ready to go. But it was a little bit more complicated. There were several characters lots of characters, lots of old ladies, and they all had stories, and we were trying to figure out how to weave them all together in a really cohesive unit, and my editor decided that, well, she had seen parts of Knitting Now, and she wanted to see more of that and some of my other work, too, and after she looked at everything, she decided that Knitting Now would be the better first book. She never really said why, but I think it probably has something to do with just that it's a smaller story and it's maybe a better sort of breakground story for me as a person, as an artist. And I think now looking back, I can see her rationale much more clear, clearly because it, the other one would have even artistically been challenging as a first book, trying to get all the pieces to visually blend as well as literarily whatever. So, uh, yeah, it would just been more complicated. Yeah, so I was really glad in the end that we shifted gears after a year. And and then with Knitting Now, it's a small story, and even though a small story sometimes is the hardest to write because you really have to get to the actual details faster, and it has to, um, there can be no extraneous words. It, it didn't go through a huge editing phase. I don't think they really changed a whole lot at all with it, which was great because then I could get to the art right away. And, um, and so that was the first published story anyway. And um, there are many still lurking about in files, <laughs> off in the closet. Mm-hmm. 
And there's one um, underway. In fact, it's and it's hopefully its last revision stage um, at the publisher, and will be fingers crossed the next book. Oh, fantastic! Fantastic. Is this another one that has uh, any kind of uh, art or craft in, in represented in it? Well, it does. It wasn't intended to be anything that would relate to knitting now. A lot of people ask if there's going to be another one about now, and I don't know if we will do that. Time will tell. But this it has a grandfather character who makes whirligigs out of all kinds of things. He's oh, my grandfather of, made those. My dad does, too. Oh, yeah. great. Mm-hmm. Oh, I should I'll contact you after the show and <laughs> chat about that. Yeah. <laughs> um, he makes things. He recycles. He builds them out of maybe your, the men in your life do that, too. Um, he uses things from his dead wife's uh, collection, odd collection of things, out in the shed where she kept everything. And so it's kind of ends up being a tribute to her life. Mm-hmm. Um, but he also gets to use up all her stuff, which he can't throw away after her death. And so it's the story of, of him and his, and his granddaughter. She, does, she kind of watches as he makes whirligigs, and she has her own stuff that she's kind of trying to get through in the story. But the grandfather character, anyway, is a crafter. Yeah, well, so it sounds like this really permeates your work because it's who you are. Yeah, I, you know, and I wasn't even so conscious of it. It just, you know, it just kind of trickles in, and then you go, oh, yeah, that makes sense. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, I love to talk about um, Knitting Nell. Um, I think this this book is great, and I love her. I feel like she's Thank real. <laughs> yeah, I have, too. Yeah, she's kind of taken on a life of her own. And um, So how when did you write this story? I wrote it, gosh, it's probably been like three or so years ago, now, um, the story of how she as a character came to life is something that I like to tell kids when I'm out because it ties into that whole finding your passion thing and listening to your own mm-hmm. voice. I um, was trying to just have a day where I didn't have an agenda. I was sitting down and I wanted to just paint because I hadn't for a long time and I wanted to just sit and feel the brush, the wet brush against the paper, and it was a beautiful summer day, and I had the window open, and it just I just wanted to experience painting for the love of it, but I was sitting there, and I couldn't figure out what to paint, <laughs> and uh, as I was gazing out the window, Nell came to me just in the same fashion as someone would come and knock on your door and say, hello, I'm so-and-so. She just popped in, and it was kind of strange because I wasn't really even knitting at the time. I did know I taught myself how to knit way back after college, but I hadn't been very active knitting. And all of a sudden, there was this girl who was walking her dog and knitting in my sort of land mindscape. And um, so I started to sketch, and she came to life really just that fast. And the first drawing I did of her ended up being pretty much the model for the cover of the book, which is now walking her dog while knitting. (laughs) She does everything while knitting. (laughs) (laughs) And so that's kind of amazing to me. It's almost, it's, well, it's like what people say when you put yourself in the place of creativity, when you say, okay, you know, with the intent to sit and write or draw or paint or whatever you're going to do. It's almost like you just open up channels 
for amazing things to float in. Right. And, um, mm-hmm. So wherever that came from and for whatever reason, and some of those reasons actually are, are, are coming out now, you know, in ways that I'll probably be difficult to articulate, but I see now, you know, that it maybe did come from a place outside of me somewhat. And anyway, that's how she was born. And when she came out on paper, of course, then a story started to build as I was painting. Like, well, what does this girl do besides knit? Or does she just knit all the time? And then it was like, well, of course, that's who she is. She And so then the story started from there, and um, I started scribbling down ideas, and then I ended up painting a scene of her with her friends, at the park and um, sketched out some more things. And, you know, one thing leads to another, and then it starts to gel. With your permission, of course, I'll post a, one of your images of Nell on the, on the website so people can kind of get an idea of who she is, and we'll have links to your website as well. But for those who can't see right now your book or an image of what she looks like, can you describe her a little bit for us? Sure. Um, she, as a character, I, I was trying to get a little bit more stylized, juvenile look to my work when I was painting. I guess that was sort of a, a, a little bit of an agenda when I was sitting that day. I was trying to push my work a little bit more toward children's. It was still a, a little too adult looking to me. So I was just trying to push all the, all the little um, edges. And so she's quite stylized. She's very, she's got really skinny legs and a big head and a big sort of round owlish wise head little blonde pigtails and um, she's a little bit of a tomboy want to do the classic you know girl in a dress with a few frou-frou-y shoes and um, so I put her in a t-shirt and shorts and she carries a blue satchel where she carries her yarn and her constant stash for whatever <laughs> she's knitting on the go well, and one of the things I you know noticed here in your book is that she's um it seems like she really is just content with herself. And was that was that one of your intentions or was that one of the things that just kind of came out as you developed the story? And I think it's a great message for kids. She she does her thing and while it can be disappointing to her that other people aren't as engaged <laughs> in what she's doing and that there people are just kind of going out and she's always the one listening in the group you know but she seems to be though where some kids might feel pressure to conform or to stop knitting and do what other kids are doing she just continues to do her thing um is that something a message you were trying to convey um i think it was a subtle thing that i was trying to pull in um there too things just sort of happen and you don't I don't know that it was such a conscious choice, but um, it could be that she's just a little bit like me and other people I know who are the me that I wanted to be, maybe. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, that, yeah, I just wanted her to be to be pretty intent and to kind of like know herself while still struggling. Um, books tend to be autobiographical I think whether you want them to or not <laughs> and um right and the I best think, fiction has part of the writer in it yeah, yeah so there's a little bit of that I <clears throat> I feel like I'm a pretty quiet person but I know where I'm going and what what I'm about finally and but I still struggle with having my voice heard and um Nell struggles with her voice in this book she has a small 
small voice and um, physically small. And by the end of the book, she discovers that that doesn't matter because what matters is your voice in the larger sense of what you do, what you what you do with yourself, and how you how you communicate the larger parts of yourself. Um, so, yeah, I think that that came in pretty subtly, but. And then now when I look back, I think, gosh, yes, that does make a lot of sense for her as a character. Mm-hmm. Well, I, I wanted to see, and I know we talked about the, the, the challenge with picture books is when you're reading to a group on location, you can show the pictures. Mm-hmm. Obviously, we're not going to try to recreate your book online because I think your publisher would be extremely upset with both of us if we did that. <laughs> <laughs> but I don't know, how, I mean, how do you feel about reading it? I can certainly read it. So whenever you're ready, and I'll just follow along in my copy here. Story of Knitting Nell. This is Nell. She knits a lot. A boy named Danny Tucker once told her she had a voice like a cricket with a pillow over its head, and she believed him. So Nell doesn't talk a lot. Sometimes she knits at the park so she can listen to the trees. Her friends often come by to chat, and Nell listens. To them. I'm so glad school is over. I think my mom can take us to the beach. Who's coming? Count me in. Me too. I'll bring snacks. I got a new purple two-piece and matching goggles. Now, how can you be knitting scarves when it's summer outside? Well, I'm making scarves for... I just don't get it. Do you, Delia? No, I certainly do not. Ha, 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 As Nell listens, she knits a blanket for her aunt's new baby. She knits lots of socks and hats and mittens for the children's home. She knits more socks and hats and mittens for people in a country far away whose leaders are at war. She knits matching scarves for Grandma and Grandpa, a scarf for Mom and Dad, Seriously, Dad, you can wait until winter to wear it. And her brother, who asks for just a few more inches. And somewhere in the midst of all of this, Nell makes a beautiful sweater for herself. Look, everyone, she shows her friends. Goodbye, they say. And she decides to enter it in the county fair. Summer passes, and the friends are at the ice cream parlor. Let's go see that new movie, Monster Mix-Up. I hear that is way too scary. I personally would love to see Princess Peanut or Dogs in Love. Weeks later, Nell and her friends are very excited about the annual county fair. At the end of the day... Everyone looks forward to the champion ceremony under the big tent. Nell and her friends find seats together. Friends of Green County, it is time for the announcements of the grand champions. Most obedient dog, Pickles. Prettiest cow, Lucy. Best sheep, Daisy. Most creative, Seedart. Danny Tucker. 
tastiest cake, Andy Harper. Best pickles, Dina Jones. And best knitting, Nell Nielsen. Nobody is really surprised when Nell wins first prize for her sweater. But for all those gifts of socks and hats and mittens, she is also awarded a beautiful special medal from the mayor of her town. For outstanding efforts in the service of others, Nell Nielsen. Yay, Nell! Wow, her friends say. Nell's family is so proud and her friends are amazed. Nell still knits a lot and she listens a lot. But now, with her happy cricket's voice, Nell talks a lot, too. Loop that over, and there you go. Good. Oh, yes, that's perfect. Okay, Danny, a little looser on your next row. The end. That's a wonderful story. I really love it. Did oh, you thanks. Did you find that you wrote it all in one sitting? I wrote most of it in one sitting. It was pointed out to me by the editor, though, when we were working on it, that it didn't have enough of a conflict. You always have to have something that the that the protagonist gets through. And mm-hmm. even though she was struggling with her voice through the story, there needed to be more of a moment where upon which it pivots, mm-hmm. and where there's you know. So so Danny the bully was invented to bring it to a head, and mm-hmm. he comes on the second page and tells her that she has this this voice like a cricket with a pillow it's over its head just to kind of bring it to a, a nice head, and then from that point, it's, <clears throat> it's clear what the struggle is. So that was the thing that, um, amazingly, it took a, a really long time just to come up with one sentence that pinpointed it. Well, that's that's the challenge with these books. I mean, how many words do you is the whole book? I mean, you don't. No, have to, I don't even know. Okay, you don't they, have to count them. I don't know. Do they tell you pages? Is well, it? Well, typically, uh, a picture book shouldn't be much over a thousand words. Okay, and so you have to tell the whole story. Not over fifteen hundred words. Otherwise, they're going to lose the kid. So, a thousand words is is, a, is around the max that they suggest. And this is far under that. I think it's probably five hundred. Well, and, and and people too. I mean, obviously, this is a picture book, so the the pictures tell a great deal of the story as right. well. And um, you have that multi-talented, uh, you know, repertoire here where you can you're versatile to be able to not only write the words but also handle the the wonderful illustration. And these are you painted these, mm-hmm. and what did you use? Was that is it watercolor or? I did. Um, it's- watercolor primarily with bits of gouache, which is also watercolor too, except that it's more opaque. Mm-hmm. And then, um, I sort of have a whatever works attitude toward most things. With watercolor, it seems like I like to add lots of layers, so sometimes I'll go back over areas with gesso, which kind of com- completely whites it out, but also lets a little of the color shine through, and then I'll put more color on top of that. And then I add bits of colored pencil and ink here and there. So are you sketching first, or do you just paint first? I, I sketch it out and draw a pretty a pretty tight little drawing, and then I trace it onto watercolor paper. Okay. So uh, do you have your lines on there to, to paint within? Yeah, I, I, I put the lines on, and then I erase back so that there's just the faintest bit 
um, such as the pencil doesn't come through too much. Okay, because I was trying to figure out how you... I took a watercolor class and found out I was miserable as a watercolor <laughs> painter. It's not my forte, but I love I love watercolors. So I thought, well, I love watercolors, so maybe I'll be able to... Um, maybe watercolors will love me, <laughs> but not so much. <laughs> but I think it's you get some re- really vibrant colors, and I found that for me, I always everything seemed so washed out, you know, like I was afraid to put too much on you know out and uh so that was really hard for me to get a handle on how to get the very bright colors and you've you've clearly mastered that well that is the thing that i was thinking about a lot in painting because i knew enough about reproduction and how much gets lost Mm -hmm. um, and which colors translate better into printed ink after a while i just sort of decided oh what the heck i'm not do what i want (laughs) but in the beginning anyway i was trying to get some punchy colors going on. Plus, it's a story about knitting, and it's in the summer, and so I wanted to use bright colors. When normally I'm a much more subtle person. Oh, really? You palette-wise? Oh, you wouldn't normally use these bright colors because you have a lot of like. There's she was wearing kind of an orangey red uh, yeah. sweater, and she's got the purple of her a scarf that she's knitting, and um, right. a lot of greens for and blue skies and flowers with faces, which is really kind of cute too um but do you have any particular i don't know how you want to describe like for the folks at home like how you describe your work if you're describing it to someone who can't see it right at the moment how would you describe your style as a watercolor artist i would say it's very it's very painterly um there are water there are people who work in like larger blocks of color where you know it's just a pretty consistent tone i tend to like to mix colors up and have the brush strokes show and have layers shining through layers and I love to paint in oil too so maybe it kind of comes that's a a similar technique where you're you know you're working layers and you've got even glazes of color in watercolor it's a little harder to do that Um, but I think when you add any other media or whenever you're mixing media you can get that look so I may have a light wash underneath, but then if I'm going in and trying to add a little punch here and there, I'll put in the the gouache in spots so that it's more opaque, and then I'll go back over and maybe do another little wash over part of it. And so it's a little bit more painterly and layered, I guess. I noticed that, like around some of the faces in particular, there's white space in between, or what appears to me is white space in between. Yeah, with this book in particular, I decided that I wanted leave a little white space around most of the forms so that the colors don't butt up. Okay, and that kind of defines the character against a background because I was trying to figure out, I mean, someone who had smeared all the colors together when I tried to paint with watercolors, I was like, how, so are you leaving that space blank to start with or are you going? It's blank. It's just the paper showing coming through. And I just think that that provides, I think white space when it's allowed to shine through in a painting creates almost a glittery sort of light filled effect yeah well the yeah in the the forms do pop from Mm -hmm. the background and i'm i'm in awe because i had no control at all when i was trying to paint so that takes a little bit of control to to leave that space around so it does although and once you once you actually start doing it though consistently it's actually easier yeah just to do that uh, getting colors to butt up without overlapping, which creates its own mess, is 
you know, it was really tough. Right. So, so for you, this is a, a way that you're able to get the effect you want without smearing colors. And... Yeah. And for this particular book, there are so many illustrations. I and mean, some pages have nine little squares. And um, it was a pretty intense painting job. There are other picture books where there'll be one painting that covers a two-page Right, you have a lot in here. Do you know how how many illustrations you have in here? I never counted, um, but a lot of people say, uh, I bet you're not going to do it quite this way. It's because every little painting takes just as long, whether it's, you know, reproduced in a small vignette or a two-page spread. How big are you working with these images? I like to work on the small side, although my eyes are now starting to show their age to me, and so I'm having to work a little bigger. Most of the time I'm working within probably like a 9 by 12 foot, foot inch, 9 by 12 inch. I was going to say, that sounds pretty big, uh, yeah. Um, and then uh, for the book, most of it was reduced down to another, you know, to, like from 250 to, well, yeah, about 250 percent Okay. Well, I think that that's one of the the treats of this book is that the story, as with many children books, I mean the story is really in the images. You know, they work. Uh, the images do tell a great deal of this story, and they're they're beautiful. You know, they're they're. Um, I, I really I love. Well, I love water. I'm partial to watercolors. I think so. Of course, and then of course you have any watercolored pictures of a girl knitting, and I'm completely sucked in. You know. Um. <laughs> Because it's really like one of the hardest techniques to master. So give yourself only because it's so unforgiving. Yeah, well, I took I took the class. Oh, geez, this would have been um, a while ago. Um, I want to say it was before I had children, and I uh, was in a, just a, the community college. You know, I think people need to go to their community college more. I went off to the university after high school, and. Uh, you know, settled in West Michigan and decided, hmm, the community college has some interesting art classes. So I've taken a couple things there and I was in a class with, there were some very talented people in there. So I felt at times, um, totally inaccurate, inadequate <laughs> to be in this, this class. And, um, but I, what I found is that it was, it's, it's great to step outside your comfort zone yeah. every now and then. And I still have my paints and, you know, I did get one halfway recognizable photo. I did a, um, I call it Juna in blue and Juna is my Alaskan Malamute. And I did a little picture of a portrait of her where you take a photograph and turn it upside down and paint, kind of just paint the shapes as opposed to trying to paint like say, oh, I'm going to paint a picture of my dog, yeah, you know. Yeah. Um, that's, a good, that's a good way to. The professor was, you know, when she said, yeah, you'll be able to do this. And I'm thinking to myself, I don't know. I really don't think I'm going to be able to do this. But I tried it and I was pleasantly surprised. It's nothing that would win any awards, but it was fun. So, um, well, but, that's the point, really, I think. And if you were to sit and do it for longer, you know, for longer stretches. Yeah, I'm sure that, you know. More frequently, your style would probably start to come out, you know, and then you'd really loosen up. Yeah, I haven't, um, I haven't written it off by any means. I just, uh, at this point, it's, it's going to be kind of on the back burner. Is there anything you want to say about your illustrations or um, anything in the book? I don't know if you have any favorite illustrations or anything that was particularly challenging Um, to you. There was one illustration that I just loved and a lot of people have said that they too just for some reason resonate with it and it I, and maybe it's even knitters only but um, there's a page where Nell is at the fair and it, it's only really told in pictures like I wasn't able to really read it but she's there there are all these little fair scenes 
and she's with her friends, and they're riding the Ferris wheel and doing all the fun fair things. And standing, having a snack, one friend says, let's get more mini donuts, but Nell has her eye on the sheep <laughs> off in the distance, and she just says, see you later, I'm, I'm leaving you, I'll meet you later. So um, the next little image is Nell standing at the entry to the sheep barn, there are four sheep in the front, in the foreground, and she's standing there, and it's just, I did it on purpose. It was supposed to be like an epiphany, um, and the light is like all right around <laughs> right. her like, oh my gosh, this is my It's life. fiber heaven, yeah, yeah. Anyway, I love that it's a very simple, um, nothing, you know, that exquisite about it technologically, but it just is so sweet to me because there's one sheep that's facing her too, and then she goes over and makes friends with that particular sheep, and then that sheep ends up being the one who wins the blue ribbon later in the book. But I just love that little image of her kind of coming to the coming to the origins of her book. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think that um, I know I always like to check out the sheep barn at when I go to Fiber Fest here in Michigan um, because it's, uh, I mean, I have respect for those little creatures because they give us yeah. our yarn, you know. <laughs> So, so well, I think it's it's absolutely beautiful, and um, the wonderful part about this too is there's also a real life knitting component to it because you're doing your good scarf project. So, could right. you talk a little yeah. bit about that? Sure. Um, well, as you have talked about even here on the show with um, Betty Christensen, who has her own book called Knitting for Peace, we decided that it would be fun to have a little philanthropic knitting activity that was designed for kids, although we're not turning anyone away, but um, we thought we would try to have something that kids could get drawn into where they could knit for something good. And so we decided to call it the Good Scarf Project because usually a child who is first learning to knit can knit a a simple scarf. Mm -hmm. And um, we're giving the opportunity for the child to decide what they want to knit for. So um, while they're knitting, we just suggest that they knit in honor of something good, like a thought, like peace, or a person who's important in their lives, or maybe it can even be a charity that they're familiar with. We've had kids knitting for the Animal Humane Society and um, different kinds of organizations like that that are already established. Mm -hmm. And then they also, if they want to, they can knit... um, as a fundraiser for their school, and we have a downloadable kit online where um, a child can take uh, a form around and get people to pledge a certain amount of money per row knit for their scarf, and then that all goes toward the school or toward the charity of the child's choice. Um, we haven't had as much of that going on yet, but we're still just a few months in, and now that I've been out visiting schools, we're, tr- we're getting a little bit more interested in kids actually fundraising for their classroom or for their school. So um, after the child knits the scarf section, we're trying to encourage them to take a digital photograph of it or a portion of it and send that photograph into the website, which is goodscarfproject.org. And there's a information, complete information about how to submit there. And then the, the image gets 
um, connected to other scarf images from other kids with the child's name and what they've knit in honor of. And um, there could even be a link if they're knitting for a charity or an organization, there'll be a link to that site so that people can get more information. So basically, it's just to have fun, to um, have kids knit for one thing, Yeah, maybe even knit together with their school group. And then if they want to submit it to the site and have all these little scarf pieces knit together basically online and you can scroll off. Right now, I think we have about 62 actual feet and um, all the little sections are, are knit virtually together online. We're finding a little bit that uh, disconnect between kids knitting and getting it actually to the site, which we're trying to fix. <laughs> yeah, because it's probably hard. A lot of the kids knitting probably don't have access to or know how to do it themselves. Right. And yeah. so we're, what we've added recently is just the, um, the, just the idea of knitting a scarf for something good and having drop boxes at um, either the schools or, like, we've got a, a site here in our community here in Minneapolis um, where then they'll be donated to a charity, and then if the kid wants to, they can send in a picture, or we'll take photos and add of all of them after they're donated. And, I see. And put them up. It's kind of evolving, but we just wanted, we were thinking that the kids are just so tech savvy that it would be a fun way for them to see their efforts online. Um, you know, with other kids' efforts. So it it may grow into something more digital or it may not but Mm -hmm. it's starting to have a life at least outside where kids are are knitting in small groups and small communities and classrooms and you got to feel good about being able to inspire that and you never know you might get some i suspect there are some big kids listening right now that might want to do a dedication to something or someone and um, take a picture of their scarf so is that okay if uh, um, some of us big kids do that yeah, okay. and, um, we would absolutely love it. We we did put a call out to some of the local knitting groups and blogs, and um, a friend of mine here who has connection with all these young mother knitters um, put the call out, and I said that I would give free books to the first five people who submit to the site. Oh, well, that's nice. So and, have you already given those out? And they have not all been given out, so that offer still holds. All you have to do is put... Knitting now, um, what did I say? Or you can just say book giveaway somewhere in your submission line. And um, the offer still holds because we're not at five. Well, maybe what we'll do, you know, <laughs> we might be able to do. Well, um, well, maybe if you if you would, because it sounds like you were going to give one book, and this is I can edit this, you know, us just talking here out. Um, we can maybe do a thing where if you want. If you're looking for submissions, I can tell people, hey, take a picture of a scarf or you know, make a make a at least a segment of one, mm-hmm. submit it, um, and then I can uh, we'll do a random uh, selection of those folks who do it, and then I'll forward, of course, all the photos on to you and your website. But then I can uh, have Abby, as uh, she's the vice president of fun here at Craft Sanity, and she does the random drawings. Um, <laughs> So she, she is. Um, she she would make could make a selection so we could get uh, a craft sanity winner if you're if you're open to that. Sure. Yeah, that might right. be. Then that, and then what I can do is, um, you know, I kind of get people to kind of poke people with the stick a little bit to to do this, you know. And a lot of people probably have um, s- scarves that they've knit, you know, because right. it's the winter time and a lot of us are right. making scarves anyway. So. 
Right, and we're all knitting in honor of something good yeah. all the time, aren't we? Well, and I just think it's absolutely wonderful to dedicate to something. And you don't have to. You're not asking for money. You're no. just asking for the photo no. of a scarf. Right. So we just It runs for a year, and we just want to see how long we can get it. Basically. Do you have a goal in mind of how long you'd like it to be? Nope. We just, wanna, we just thought, you know, in a year's time, let's just see what we can do. Okay. Have fun doing it. And, um being that it's kind of happening over the over a, wi- a winter season too, it gives people or kids anyway something to knit on. Let's see if maybe Craft Sanity can help you get some uh, some yardage here, That's maybe some funny. mileage we should say mileage. Yeah, absolutely, and to tell kids too if they know knitting kids who might want to. Oh yeah, my kids are too small to knit, but I think uh, a lot of the people listening are, are moms and dads, and you know if they can if their child's knitting, this is a great way to give exposure to a child as well to say, hey, we're going to be part of this big knitting community. I mean, there's so much garbage online, you know. I mean, it's, if you can direct your child to something wonderful online, it's a definite plus for everyone. Right. And I know one of the things when I, uh, I actually reviewed your book for my newspaper, and uh, I thought one of the things that really I loved about it was this is one of those children's books that the kids like, and so does mom, you know, <laughs> because it seems like sometimes kids glom onto books that you're like, oh, please, if I have to read this one more time, I'm going to go bananas, you know. And this is one of those books where, as a, a crafter and a knitter and lover of everything handmade, I really love this book. <laughs> so I was like, let's read it again, honey. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and it was mom saying it this time instead of, you know, the child, you know. So Yeah. Well, thank you. Yeah, so it's really the ultimate compliment. Yeah, it's fantastic. So what can we expect next? It sounds like you have something uh coming out soon. Um, I will find out in short order about book number two. Okay. And if indeed that is a go, as I'm hoping it will be, that would come out in 2008 because it takes a long time even after you hand in all of your artwork it takes a year wow yeah that's it is a long time and you have to be patient you know and then i'm working on a couple of other stories and i'm um uh, painting up another book dummy what they're called when they're just in sort of concept form and that i'm going to be submitting to to uh, a different publisher Partly because it's a little bit more specific subject-wise. And um, so the books are just kind of piling up the ideas anyway, piling up here. And um, hopefully they'll keep coming. Yeah, well, it, it, it sounds like you're on, a, you're on a roll now. Do you feel like after you get your first book out, things open up a little bit where it's easier to get in and, to, I mean, get attention from publishers if they've seen that you've already done one Definitely, successful yeah. the, piece. The foot's in the door, and um, the publisher I'm working with, Houghton Mifflin, is wonderful, and they have given me so much creative freedom that I would love to just continue working with them exclusively. Um, and I know that publishers t- typically like that, too, especially if you're an artist and an author. Mm-hmm. They like to kind of keep you. So I'm hoping we can have a nice, long relationship yeah, well, I wish you the best, and I, I, I hope that Knitting Now comes back at some point, it, doing something else, because, so yeah, because we'd like to hear what happens to her next. Cause, I do have a lovely little doll here, but um, I had, had one of the um, online crafter women, when I was out looking at knitting blogs, I found her site, and, you know, there are a lot of toy makers online who sell their things through Etsy and various you know, their own 
their own sites. Yeah, some and wonderful stuff out there. One, a lovely crafter woman from Australia make me a little Nell doll. And who, who was it that you had make you a Nell doll? It was Fiona Dalton with Hop, Skip, Jump. You know, did, I, I've, heard, I've heard of her. She wrote, I, uh, apparently she has a book out with, is it maybe nine or so other crafters? And it's, um, I can't think of the title, but they pulled it together just this Yeah, is it one that fall. just came out? Yeah, in fact, I think I'm tr- I, I'm, I plan to try and talk to the organizer yeah. of that project because um, I think it's fantastic. I haven't seen it yet, but I'm dying to see it. Yeah, I was too. So, and I noticed, I didn't know it until just very recently, somehow the information. I just, when I saw her stuff, I just thought, oh, she makes faces the way I make faces, and maybe she'll make me at all. So, she did, of course, and it's just lovely. That is fantastic. So, she just looked at your book. Yep. And made I sent her a copy, and I said, just do whatever. Take whatever whatever inspiration you can find. She's got the little jumper. and Go for it. And, um, you know, in all, I am just so inspired by all of the crafting women online. Um, you know, stumbled into them all in just my research, trying to find places to tap into knitting blogs here and there. And... Um, it's just such a delightful part of my day, and I do. Now I'm, like, hooked on a few different ones that I have to check every day because they're making such amazing things, and I thought, I'm just, like, a half a generation ahead of these women, but they all would have, I mean, I would have been right in there, just <laughs> all of them, my best friends, you know, and I, I feel so, it's like, it's like reliving my 30s. Yeah. Well, you know what? I, I, you're, you're right in there with all of us. I mean, seriously, you're contributing to, I don't think age matters at all. Cause I think you're, you're part of the creative, you know, the um, creative world that's going on right now. And, um, I mean, just think about it. I mean, your connection, this woman, you said she's in Australia, uh-huh. um, and you sent your book across the ocean and yeah. she made you this dial and sent it back. And, how wonderful is yeah, that? And without the Internet, that would never have happened. I just adore it for that reason. And you're right. I, don't, I feel completely ageless when I'm poking around and I'm, I'm hearing these stories of raising children and finding time to knit and sew and all these gorgeous things being displayed at these blogs. And I'm just thinking, I am so lucky that I get to see this stuff. It inspires me to, you know, pull out the odds and ends and just get crafting again and um, hearing stories of raising children. I mean, that's just, I just love it. It's, um, I can't wait for grandchildren. I'm a ways off. I, my oldest is 16. <laughs> but, <laughs> but, you know, it just takes me back. It's yeah. like reading a good novel or reading these bits of blogs and seeing the, the gorgeous creations that come out of these women's lives. Well, it's just fantastic, the community out there that, mm-hmm. um, you've, you know, you start to feel like you kind of know these people, but you really, I mean, we really you don't know them, at least not the way you know people that you see every day, but it's, it's wonderful. And, well, how many children do you have? I have two. Two? Yeah. Bo- 15 and 14. And boys or girls? You've- One of each. Oh, okay. So you get to experience the best of both worlds yeah. there. Yeah. It's been great. Yeah. And do they, are they crafty and artistic as well? They're pretty artistic, not so crafty. 
be, although I've tried to push that on them many times over. <laughs> um, we Well, actually, when they were young, we did lots and lots and lots yeah. of crafts. But, you know, then they kind of grow out of that. and Well, and they might come back to it. Yeah, now it seems they're heading more towards the paints and the poetry. And well, that's got to be fun, too. It's wonderful. To see how that art artistic side comes out in your kids yeah so yeah i'm gonna have to try to restrain myself before i you know i've already i mean abby has witnessed all kinds of stuff and when i come home from the fabric store she'll i let her before i wash all the fabric i let her pull it all out of the bag and she'll put it in a pile you know she kind of unfolds everything and piles it up and she's like mama i love fabric and it just warms my heart (laughs) oh yeah she knows what fabric is but it's it's hilarious because um you know she's my kind of a little assistant um if nothing if i'm doing a project that doesn't really matter if everything gets all messed up <laughs> during the process you know I'll, she comes down in the craft room with me and you know i have her usually she'll does what she calls organizing fabrics which really means she's pulling them off my organized files and <laughs> putting them into a big mound on the floor but um she loves it you know and so i i love watching her loving fabric i mean i think it's great so and when they're allowed to just have the freedom explore it you know i think it really is uh, quite exhilarating yeah and i'm trying to you know i want to as a you know obviously I'd, I'd be thrilled if my girls both grow up and are like making things you know and crafting up a storm but i at the same time recognize that they're very very likely could be a point where abby does want nothing she wants nothing to do with yarn or fabric and no she does not want to weave or anything like that and that's going to be that's fine but i just have to make sure i um i'm I'm kind of aware of the fact that my child my children are going to do what you know they feel is right for them to do and i'm going to try not to be too pushy with my you know art and crafting um but it's 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 hard though because i know how excited i get when i do a project I make a quilt square and I'm like Abby look what I made last night after you went to bed and I show her and she's like I love it mama <laughs> and I mean is there any better sound <laughs> oh my God. to get validation from a two and a half year old but she's just so excited you know well I think that says a lot that so, she is that interested right now well yeah but like I said I'm, I keep telling my husband don't let me get to the point where I'm like pressuring the kids into to crafts you know I just want to make sure I'm not I want to make sure if they do it, it's because they love it, not because yeah. Mama does, you know. Yeah, right. So, anyway, well, just a kind of a uh, little tangent there by me, but... Um, no, I, well, that's, I mean, if I had my way, I would spend another <laughs> hour asking you questions. <laughs> yeah, I always, I, I kind of feel like I'm a, I'm a little too chatty for my own good sometimes, but... <laughs> well, yeah, I, I don't... Delightful. I, I wanted to get onto one other thing. I know you have a family connection, a little sweater connection there. Is it like the family business? Well, it's, let's see, how to make this short. Yeah, there, was, uh, uh, there were five brothers who came over from Denmark in the late 1800s, and they settled in northern Wisconsin, and one of the brothers was a minister, and he <clears throat> knit for his ten kids out of necessity, but his congregation loved what he did, so they started asking for things, and he started knitting for members of the congregation and then he um over time he got a knitting machine from switzerland and started making all kinds of things which developed into a small company which then got larger and larger and it's called jersel knitting company and is now owned by a different woolen company here in minnesota that's a branch of the family a little bit more distant branch one of those five brothers 
who came over from Denmark was my great grandfather, but he ended up going somewhere else. So, you know, by this by this time, it it, it is a bit more distant. And the funny story about that is that I did a, an event in the hometown of this family, the knitting family, and long story, but somehow the library got me over there, had caught wind of, you know, the family connection thing, and when it was first being advertised, there were some older members of the Dursold clan in the, in the town who were like, who is this person we've never heard of? <laughs> um, but back then, of course, um, they all had lots and lots of kids because the the mortality rate was high. Well, none of the Jersold kids died, so they were just like all these kids and all these procreators all over the place. So it took a while to kind of set that straight and to say, this is who I am and this is where I fit in. And then when I went to the library and did the event, they were they were just wonderful. There were these couple of old women who came to the event and we had lunch and um, now they're my good friends, and you know we went through the family tree together and got it all straight. <laughs> oh, that's great! And so you, you said your grandfather was the brother of the man that was knitting uh, up a storm. Yeah, great okay. grandfather was the brother. Yeah. Oh, great grandfather. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So it was a ways back, but um, no, it's still an excellent story. And how uh, yeah, and, knitting and, is part of your family heritage. Well, and really wasn't even in my thought scape when I was making the book. But then after it was created, I thought, you know, I should find out what happened to this little knitting company. I had heard it had been sold. Actually, it wasn't so little. It was doing really well, and they made Scandinavian, beautiful Scandinavian sweaters. And then after I found out it had been acquired by the Midget Woolen Mills here in Minnesota, I thought, oh, now it's in my own backyard. I bet they'll, I bet they'll be interested in finding out about this book. And so they were, um, they were very interested and were early sponsors of the Good Scarf Project. Oh, that's excellent. That's excellent. Yeah. Well, and it's, it, I love how hearing how things are connected like that because I think that the project you're doing is really about connecting people all over the world, you know, and getting people to contribute their little part of the scarf <laughs> and dedicate it to something they love and or something good. And uh, we'll see what we can do about getting more people to, to contribute to that for you. Well, uh, that would be fantastic. Is there anything I didn't ask you that you would like people to know about you or your book or your work? Um, I don't think so. I don't think so. Uh, this is more more than I've said about myself in one big lump than probably any other time. <laughs> <laughs> I have that way He's about me. You're a quiet sort of person like Nell. Yeah, well, I think it's wonderful, though. I'm especially interested in hearing what quiet people have to say because the loudmouths like me are the ones that are always talking, you know. So when we stop for a second and listen to the quiet people, it's we're usually in for quite a treat. So, And I was today for sure. So, Well, thank you. It was a wonderful pleasure to be on your show. Thanks to Julie for being such a fabulous guest and giving us a peek into the world of what it's like to be a children's book author and illustrator. And as it turns out, you know, Julie is so much more than that. And I was so glad to hear about her life as a creative woman and artist. And she has a wonderful story, but I find that, you know, every person I interview, these stories are great. And I love it when people tell me things I don't expect. So I think Julie had a lot of interesting jobs she told us about. And I just had a great time chatting with her. And I hope you enjoyed hearing her story as well. Please visit craftsanity.com for links to Julie's website and more information about her and her book. You'll also find links to get involved with Julie's Good Scarf Project. 
And for that project, all you have to do is knit just a small section of the scarf and then take a picture and submit it through Julie's website. And it's based on the book, as Julie mentioned during the interview. And the idea is to grow this virtual scarf as long as possible and let people dedicate their section to something good. So it's something that it doesn't cost money. You do have to invest a little bit of time to make your swatch. But, you know, what the heck? Why not do it? It's uh, Why not put a little good karma out in the world? As I said, the project ends next month. So let's help her make a final push to grow this scarf a little bit longer before the deadline. You'll also be able to download this week's project from craftsanity.com, and it's called Wandering Henry. And it's a silly tale written and illustrated by Julie to teach you how to finger knit. This is very cute and kid-friendly, so please do check it out. I absolutely love it. Thank you, Julie. Okay, let's move on to our contest wrap-up here. Congrats to Anna in West Palm Beach, Florida. You were randomly selected by Abby, Craft Sanity's Vice President of Fun, to win the Craft in America DVD. Thanks to everyone who posted all those thoughtful comments about the art versus craft question on the blog. If you haven't had a chance to read those, I encourage you to go back and look at the last show I did. Check those out. And feel free to add your comments as well. This week, I'm going to give away a copy of Julie's book, Knitting Now, to one lucky Craft Sanity listener. In the spirit of Julie's Good Scarf Project, please post a comment on the blog describing what good you knit for. Or if you don't knit, what good do you make whatever you make for? Dedicate your latest project to someone or something and tell me about it. Please email me a copy of your blog post with your mailing address, and I'll get you entered into the drawing. Of course, do not post your mailing address on the blog, because we just don't know who's looking at the blog. I do not sell the information. It's just for the contest purpose. The deadline is Friday, June 15th, so good luck to everyone. I hope you enter, because this book is super cute. Even if you don't have kids, you're going to like it. If you like knitting, you will like this book. It's just very cute. And a special thanks to Phoebe in California and Carrie in Washington for supporting the podcast. I really appreciate it, ladies. Thank you very much. I started taping some new shows, and I'm very excited about some of the interviews I've done already. One in particular is I did an interview recently with Carol Duvall, and she's got a new book coming out uh, later this month called Paper Crafting with Carol Duvall. And Carol Duvall, for those of you who don't know, is basically the queen of craft. She was crafting before Martha Stewart. So it's really was fantastic to get a chance to talk with her. So I'm really excited to bring you that interview. So you guys have a great week, and I'm going to be back as soon as I can with the next episode of Craft Sanity. I do have a couple comments in the after show, so if you want to stick around for that. Okay, everyone have a great time, and don't forget to Craft Sanity, my friends. It works for me. Thanks for listening to the Craft Sanity Podcast with Jennifer Ackerman Haywood. Visit CraftSanity.com for more information about today's guests and links to subscribing to the podcast. Want to support the show? Follow the link to vote for Craft Sanity on Podcast Alley once a month. You can also make a donation or buy goods at the Craft Sanity store. Have a suggestion for a future guest or have other feedback? Email Jennifer at CraftSanity.com. Thanks again for listening to Craft Sanity. I just kind of wanted to... Uh Throw something out there to you guys. Um, I, as you know, I've been kind of on this uh, mission to transform myself. I started the year out looking pretty frumpy, um, feeling totally frumpy, and feeling like I was run down all the time. And have now I'm on this fitness kick where every day I 
am running or swimming or biking. Um, I weight train a few times a week, and I just feel so much better. And I'm actually um, training for a marathon that's coming up in October. I'm a little scared <laughs> because it seems like it's going to be an absolute mental test, uh, not to mention physical test. But anyway, I am interested in hearing from people who craft and are athletic people. Because um, I've noticed that, you know, there's some things where um, I'm just really interested in how the world of athletic activity and creati- creativity kind of go, kind of overlap a little bit. Because I know anytime I have writer's block or I'm working on a project and I can't really figure out what to do next, if I go out for a run or swim, um, come back, I just feel like I can, you know, attack the problem or I have the answer. So anyway, um, if you're interested in that discussion and have some things to say about it, Send me an email, jennifer at craftsanity.com, and um, I'm going to keep at it. I did a century bike ride. If you, those of you who checked the blog, um, I completed my first 100-mile bike ride on Saturday. Did it on a mountain bike, which I don't recommend because um, it's heavier than a road bike, but I didn't have a road bike, so I just rode what I had and, um, I guess, in my mind now, earned the right to shop for a road bike now. Um, but it's just been really fun. So what I'd like to do is kind of, like I said, hear from some of you who are doing similar things, um, you know, whether it's road bikes or road races and running or biking or swimming or triathlons. I actually want to try some of those too. Um, so I think it might be kind of cool if we could get some kind of a crafty movement going where, you know, we're, we're out there, uh, Showing our our bad crafty selves out there um, in these races and uh, arena that's not used to seeing people crafting. So I haven't quite gelled my idea yet, but I'm just like to hear from you. Okay, so without further ado, I'm going to go on with my day. Um, I'm going to be late for a lunch appointment if I don't hurry up. So uh, I'll see you guys later.